Today we're starting uh, a brand new series uh, for this year uh, called The Gospel According to John. Uh, our, it took our creative department months to come up with that name. So, uh, but we want it to be just straightforward about what we're doing. And w- the truth is we're going to be spending um, most of 2017 in the Gospel of John. And we're going to be taking breaks, uh, do some short series here and there. Uh, but for the better part of the year, we're going to just be walking through the Gospel of John. And today we take uh, our first step in that journey. Um, over the last couple of years, we have really made a shift in, in our approach to uh, our Sunday morning experience. Uh, over the past couple of years, we've started doing just longer series where we explore books of the Bible uh, rather than doing topical uh, series. And we've done that because we really want to be people who are familiar with the Word of God. Uh, I feel like it's my role and responsibility and privilege as, as your pastor uh, to help in the process of just making you familiar with God's Word. And I feel like that's far better accomplished by just walking through Scripture uh, rather than doing short topical series. Uh, but we also want to be familiar with the Word of God so that we might know the Word of God made flesh. Uh, that is to say that all of Scripture points us to Jesus, uh, that the words of God, the words that we find in the Scripture and, in, and uh, recorded in our Bible, uh, are meant to point us to the true Word of God Uh, who is Jesus Christ. And so we want to be able to do that. In fact, John, uh, in his gospel, in the 20th chapter, says explicitly that the reason he has written this gospel is so that we might continue to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Um, And so we want to just be able to experience uh, Christ and get to know him uh, over the course of this year as we study this important gospel and this important book. Now, if you were going to go on a long hike or a long journey, you would certainly, no doubt, research the path you would make plans, you would uh, take time to orient yourself to the journey. And so I want to take a moment to orient ourselves to our biblical journey through the Gospel of John. Uh, The Gospel of John is, in fact, a gospel. Now, that may uh, seem rather obvious, but the word gospel literally means uh, good news, which means that when we read these words and these stories, uh, what this book is doing, it it is telling us the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to uh, just unpack that for a moment to understand that, in, in fact, the message of Jesus Christ is, in fact, news. It is news to the world. Uh, it is meant to be proclaimed. And so uh, over the course of this year and today, it is as though we are saying, extra, extra, uh, read all about it. A Jewish carpenter from Nazareth performs miracles and invites you to be part of his kingdom. Uh, That's essentially what we're doing is we're reading an invitation to participate in the life of Christ as we read this gospel, this good news of Jesus. Now, of the four gospels, Jesus is the most unique. It does not bear the name synoptic. Uh, The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, are given the name synoptic because they mostly focus on telling a historical narrative of the life of Jesus or a synopsis of his life. And so anytime that you hear someone refer to the synoptic gospels, they're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, my guess is that over the water cooler at work, no one is using the word synoptic gospel. Uh, But I want you to make sure that you know that and that John is considered not to be a synoptic gospel uh, because he's actually doing something different than just trying to tell a historical narrative of uh, the life of Jesus or a synopsis of his life. Now, a good example of that is uh, a lot of uh, stories that are included in two or all three of the other Gospels are not included in the Gospel of John. 
For example, uh, the, a genealogy of Jesus, we, these are the things we do not find in this gospel. Uh, a genealogy of Jesus, a record of his birth, uh, his temptation, his transfiguration, uh, his appointing of the disciples, his ascension into heaven, and the Great Commission. None of those things are found in the Gospel of John. Uh, that is not to say, however, that John has nothing to say. In fact, John has all kinds of things to say because he includes a lot of things that are f not found in any of the other Gospels. And this is why he's considered to be the most unique. Uh, and so he includes things like this. For example, uh, it, he is most explicitly, he is most explicit in calling Christ the Word of God, the Creator. Uh, the phrase Lamb of God is something that is emphasized most in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we have Jesus calling himself the great I Am in a series of seven statements. We call them the I Am statements. Uh, and these are all unique to the Gospel of John, and they're not found anywhere else. And so understood broadly, what John is trying to do is he's trying to get us to understand the identity of Jesus as God's Son, who is fully divine and fully human. Uh, in, in this way, it is the most theological of all the Gospels. So uh, one way of understanding the uniqueness of John's Gospel is to say this. The synoptics present theology from a historical point of view, while John presents history from a theological point of view. In other words, he looks at everything through a theological lens or viewpoint. Does that make sense? So what we will find then as we walk through this uh, book this year is we will find uh, that we're going to do some heavy hitting theologically. Uh, these oftentimes in the Gospel of John, you can't just simply uh, give sort of this light uh, message because there's so much going on in what John is doing and what he is saying. And so John is, first of all, a gospel, but John is also a person. And I want us to understand that, that there is a real person in real history who breathed air, who wrote down these words. Uh, he was a person, a person who had a personality, uh, a life, and all of these kinds of things. So a little bit about the person of John. John is an or was an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, he was a firsthand witness to the ministry of Jesus. And so as he's telling these stories, he's telling them from a theological point of view, but he's telling them uh, from a firsthand perspective because he was in fact there. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loves, and so he's part of the, an inner circle of three of the disciples of the 12 uh, that are closest to Jesus. And he is also the second most published author in the Bible behind the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of our New Testament, uh, but John is second in line with the most books to his credit. Uh, he is widely regarded to have written uh, both his gospel, the Gospel of John, three letters named 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So, for some clarity, there are four Johns in your New Testament. There's the Gospel of John. Then there's 1st John and 2nd John and 3rd John. Now 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are really little, so they often get overlooked, uh, but uh, they, are, they are there. So uh, he is, in fact, the second most published author in our Bible. Now, knowing that this is the same guy who wrote the book of Revelation gives us a little bit of clue into his gospel. 
uh, it gives us a little hint into this book as a whole because the Gospel of John is filled with multi-layered meaning and structure. Uh, there are, in fact, uh, no, there's no end to the layers that you can peel of this onion. Uh, you can just keep peeling back the layers of meaning and how he structures his book and the kind of language he uses on and on and on. Uh, it is absolutely a beautiful, beautiful gospel. And so, uh, with all of that being said, I want to read uh, John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read all the way through 18 uh, in a classic uh, Christmas passage. So, if you are the kind of folks who just aren't quite done with Christmas yet, today is your day because we're going to look at a classic Christmas passage. Um, but uh, is anyone like right after Christmas ends, you're just like ready for spring? Is, is that anybody? That is like totally me. Uh, and, and Amy and I were just talking about that this morning. It's like as soon as you open the presents, if the sun came out and the birds started chirping and flowers were blooming, we would all be good, right? Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, because right about now is when it just feels like we're living in Narnia, where it's always winter and never Christmas. You know what I mean? So, um, but anyway, spring is around the corner. I hope. Uh, let's read from John's Gospel, chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through 18. You can follow along with me on the screen or in your own scriptures. Uh, it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Now, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, he was a witness uh, to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. But he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and though the, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of his one and only son, who came from the Father, who is full of grace and of truth. Now John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one uh, I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. But out of his fullness, all, we have all received grace in place of grace that was already given. For the law that was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but the Son has made him known. Uh, today I want to focus in on verse 14. There's so much going on here. We could probably do uh, a number of weeks just on verses 1 through 18. Uh, but I want to focus in on verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, who is full of grace and full of truth. 
Now, the word translated dwelling here in verse 14 literally means tabernacle uh, or tent. And the wordplay by John is appropriate. You see, he wants his readers to understand the significance of the coming of Christ, but he wants them to understand that in light of God's history with the nation of Israel. And so if you go back to your Old Testament that tells the story of God's interaction, first of all, with all of humanity, but then very specifically with the nation of Israel, uh, and how through his relationship with Israel, God will then bless all of humanity through Jesus Christ. When you read that whole story in the Old Testament and you come to Exodus chapter 36, things start to get very boring. Uh, because in Exodus chapter 36, beginning with verse 8, what we read are the instructions that God gives to Israel for building the tabernacle where they would worship. And it is chapter after chapter after chapter of intricate details that are given uh, about the measurements for the temple or for the tabernacle, the material that are to be used, uh, how the labor is to be split up among all of the people uh, of the nation. Uh, you, you have so much detail about every single thing that it can be very difficult to read. Uh, it's not exactly a page turner at that point. Um, and then you get to Exodus chapter 40. So you've had four chapters uh, that are giving nothing but detail on how you are to build this tabernacle. And then in Exodus chapter 40, verses 30 and thir 34 and 35, it says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. So the tent or the tabernacle, they're interchangeable there, they're the same thing. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord, again, filled the tabernacle. Uh, for Old Testament Israel, the tabernacle was the earthly building uh, with, that housed the glory of God. Uh, th that is to say that it was understood as the location of God's presence and God's glory. Uh, it, was, uh, it was essentially where God lived. Uh, that in the Old Testament Israel, God had an address if you wanted to meet God, if you wanted to be with God, if you wanted to experience the presence of God, you couldn't do that anywhere but inside of the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. You had to go to the tabernacle because that's where the glory of God was. God had a specific physical address. And so it's interesting then when John is talking about the coming of the Word made flesh, the coming of Christ, uh, that he uses this word. Now, we translate it differently. We say God made his dwelling among us. Uh, but if you go to the Greek, and if you understand it just as dwelling, you lose all sense of what John is actually doing here. But if you look in the Greek, what John is saying is that Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, tabernacled among us. And the wordplay is actually quite intentional on his part. Uh, what he's doing is he's trying to say uh, that the glory of God is now found in Jesus Christ. That the glory of God now has taken on flesh. It's a new sort of tabernacle. And this time it's in Jesus himself. Now that is to say that God has poured his entire character, all of his glory, all of his presence, all of his personality into Jesus Christ who is made flesh. 
That is to say that God has not just poured in his nice parts or his forgiving parts into the son so that you end up with a really mean and angry father but a really nice son. Uh, That is not at all what scripture says, but oftentimes that is how we perceive the relationship between the father and the son, right? The way in which we perceive the relationship between the father and the son is that all of the judgment and the anger and the meanness of God uh, sort of dwells in the father, and then all the nice parts uh, dwell in the son, sort of God the father is the lion and God the son is the lamb. Uh, But this is not at all the witness of scripture. The witness of Scripture is that all the fullness of God dwells in His Son. If you want to know what God is like, you need to look no further than Jesus Christ. And what John is specifically saying and pointing out in saying that God has tabernacled among us, uh, th- again, He's tabernacled among us, this time, in, this time in the flesh of Jesus Christ. What he is saying is that all the glory of God now dwells in this person of Jesus Christ. Now, this tells us a lot about who God is. This tells us a lot about the nature of God. I mentioned this in my Christmas Day message, uh, but it bears repeating. Since the glory of God is revealed in Christ, we need to look no further than the life of Christ to see what the glory of God looks like. And so, if you take that understanding, then we can say that the glory of God looks like a baby being born humbly in a manger. The glory of God looks like the hungry being fed, the thirsty being given drink, the sick being healed. The glory of God looks like a king who wears a crown of thorns. And the glory of God looks like an innocent man forgiving his executioners. You see, a lot of times we understand the glory of God in very big and flamboyant pictures. But if we understand that all the glory of God dwells in Jesus Christ, then we need to look no further than the life of Christ to begin to understand what does the glory of God actually look like. And I have to tell you, church, it looks like an innocent man offering up his life and forgiving those who are doing him wrong. That's the glory of God. And in fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, that's the power of God. In other words, when God flexes his divine muscles, it does not look like one who overcomes through violence and oppression, but rather it looks like one who finds victory through death and resurrection. And as one who defeats through forgiveness and self-sacrificial love. And we need to get a hold of this as the body of Christ. As the church, we have got to let go of the typical standard cultural uh, viewpoints of what power actually looks like and begin to follow Jesus and follow the Jesus way. So all the glory of God dwells 
in Jesus Christ. And this is what the glory of God looks like. And in fact, one of John's primary goals in writing his gospel is to help us to understand that God has, in fact, taken human form in Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of crazy ideas about there, out there about Jesus, right? There are a lot of crazy ideas about Jesus. And so let's take a moment uh, just to get our thinking about Jesus correct uh, just from the truth presented in this passage alone. Because this passage alone tells us a lot about who Jesus is. And remember, what John is doing is he's not telling history and then throwing in a little bit of theology. He's throwing in theology with a little bit of history. And so what we see in this passage is we begin to understand a little bit of history, uh, but what he's giving us ultimately in this, in this passage passage is called the prologue. So what he's giving us in the prologue to his gospel is deep, deep theology about who God is and who Jesus is. So let's take a moment to just look a little bit uh, at what this passage teaches us and let's get our thinking about Jesus correct. And here's, here are just a couple of things that I want to point out. Number one, Jesus is co-eternal with the Father co-eternal with the Father. That means that Jesus is not created, he's uh, made flesh, he's incarnated. He's always been there, he always has been the word of God. Jesus isn't some sort of plan B once there was sin in the garden and then, oh, the law didn't work and so now what am I gonna do? I guess I'll send my son and kill him. That, this is, Jesus is not a plan B. Jesus has always been there. Uh, he is co-eternal with the Father. So Jesus was not created, he was incarnated. He took on flesh, but he has always been the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God has always been there, but he had to take on flesh so that we could get a picture of who God really is. That's why John is saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's, in other words, there's a community of persons in the triune God. That's a way of saying the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in perfect unity and perfect relationship with one another since the beginning of all time uh, or previous to time. For all of eternity, this is how it's been. The Word was with God, and then he says the Word was God. So Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. Now, Jesus is also co-equal with the Father. In other words, the relationship between the Father and the Son is not one of hierarchy. Isn't this, uh, this is a little bit overstated, but this is oftentimes how we tend to think about, uh, the, the, uh, how we tend to think about God. God the Father uh, is sort of the, the big one. He's the big guy, uh, but he's a little bit mysterious, and he seems to be a little bit out of the picture, Right? Uh, he's the one, he's the big kind of Santa Claus up in the sky waiting to throw down lightning bolts, just like Zeus, is oftentimes how we think about God the Father. Now, God the Son, as sort of modern American evangelicals, you got God the Son, you're, you, you nailed it. We're all about Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And so we, we think, okay, this is, this is, we know who Jesus is, we got a good thing on that. And then you have, uh, but he's not quite as good or powerful or awesome as God the Father. So we kind of put God the Father up here, a little bit lower, we put God the Son, and then we put sort of this mysterious thing that we have no idea what to do with him, God the Spirit. And, and then we just kind of think like, and, and again, this is oversimplified, but we tend to think of it as a one, two, three, and we tend to think of maybe in terms of sidekicks, right? So like Jesus is, is Batman, the Holy Spirit is Robin, just kind of helping out Jesus when, when he needs to, right? Uh, so, the, but, but, but let's, let, let, let's let go of all of that. And instead, let's realize that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father 
and Jesus is co-equal with the Father. And so what you have is not sort of this hierarchy uh, of relationship, but rather what you have is, is this circle of infinite self-giving love and relationship between the three members of the Trinity. And so I don't want you to think of a pyramid with God at the top and then at the bottom is the Spirit, but rather think of a circle and a dance that is going on between the three members of the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in perfect relationship with one another, that relationship is defined by self-giving love toward the other, and the beauty of creation then, and I want you to catch this, I told you this would not be light. Um, then here, here's the beauty then. The beauty of creation is that we are invited into the riches of this divine relationship. If you have ever asked the big existential question, why are we here? This points you in the right direction. A doctrine of who God is points you in the right direction. That God exists in perfect relationship, self-giving, self-sacrificial, loving relationship with himself in Trinity. But that love had to be poured out and shared. And so God creates and then invites us in to participate in his divine life. Now, if that makes no sense today, that's okay. I want you just to try to rest in that. Why am I here? You are invited to participate in the riches of God's divine life. That's why you're here. And we get that right here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things were made. That is to say that the Word of God, whom we would call Jesus, is the very avenue or mechanism that God uses to create. God speaks all of creation into being through His Word. And so God speaks through Jesus in the beginning to create, and then God definitively reveals himself to us through Jesus, and then he continues to speak to us now through Jesus and his Holy Spirit. Uh, theologian J.R. Michaels says this, Above all, Jesus is introduced in the prologue as the revealer, the one through whom God spoke in the beginning and through whom he continues to speak. Now, elsewhere in John's gospel, Jesus speaks the word, but in the prologue, he is the word. He is the personal embodiment of all that he proclaims. And so the, the, the way that John starts his gospel perfectly illustrates what I already mentioned at the beginning of this message, which is he is presenting history, but he is presenting history from a purely theological viewpoint. He is taking us from all the way back to before Genesis 1, and he's using it to teach us who God is and who Jesus is. And so he isn't interested in the genealogy of Jesus or the details of his birth uh, because he isn't primarily interested in sharing history. He is interested in sharing theology of who God is. And so the whole introduction serves to communicate this point. Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God made flesh and the glory of God dwells in him. And if we can get the shape of God right, then we will begin to get everything else right. But if we get the shape of God wrong, then probably everything else is going to be a little bit askew in the way in which we think. And so what John is trying to do is he's trying to get us to understand the shape of who God is and who Jesus is. And we've got to get this right. We have to understand it. Theology is absolutely important because theology informs practice. Are you with me? 
Oh. <laughs> Most of you are like halfway with you, halfway with you. The good news is we podcast these messages, so you can listen to this as many times as you want, um, and that would be great. So um, now this would all be very good, right? And this would all be like, hey, great message, awesome, yay, Jesus, yay, God, yay, Holy Spirit, yay, Trinity, let's go home and uh, watch the Broncos game, which apparently has been much later now, so we're not concerned about that, right? Um, so, but... This is all really important to think correctly about Jesus. And it's actually a beautiful truth. And it's a beautiful mystery that Jesus has come to us in this way. And, and I, I, I love the word play of John, that, that the word has tabernacled among us. That is a stroke of brilliance in helping us to understand the nature of who Jesus is. Uh, but the Apostle Paul takes it even a step further than that. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Now you, now th this is a problem. This is problematic for us because we live in such an individualistic culture. When, when we read, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? What we read is, uh, don't I know that I myself am God's temple and that God's uh, spirit dwells in my midst? We make this all about us. We make this all about me. Uh, but in fact, the you here, see in English, this is a problem. You can be you or you can be y'all. And, and, and we, don't have, we, we can't make that distinction in English, unless you're from Texas. Um, then you can. But uh, in Greek, there's a plural you, y'all, and there's a singular you, you personally. And nine times out of ten, when we would read a personal, a me kind of you, what the Greek is actually saying is a plural kind of you. And that's, in fact, the case here. And so he says, you, you all, uh, is, are the, uh, you all yourselves are the temple of God. And so when he used, but then he uses this word again. He says, temple. And we have to understand this again from the Old Testament story. After the tabernacle, and I was really hoping that this was the same word uh, that John used, uh, tabernacle, tent of meeting, but it's not. It's a different word. It's temple. So if we look again at the, the Old Testament story, uh, the tabernacle, or after the tabernacle, uh, that could be taken down and set back up, and it actually, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting traveled with the, the nation of Israel uh, as they wandered in the wilderness and in the desert. Uh, but after the tabernacle came the temple, which was the permanent site of worship, instead of, this time, made of stone. And so now, what Paul says, so, so John says, uh, the Word of God was made flesh, and He tabernacled among us. But then Paul says, you, y'all, are the temple of God. But he uses this term, but he uses a more specific term than just like the general site of the temple. He actually uses the term that is, is used to uh, denote the inner part of the temple where the Holy of Holies is what it would be called. 
And so the inner part of the temple was known as the Holy of Holies, and it is where the high priest would enter to make atonement for the sins of the people. So what, what Paul is essentially saying is that through the Spirit of God, God's presence and holiness now dwells in us. And so temple language doesn't disappear after Jesus, but rather it is reworked. And now the temple is no longer brick and mortar, but now the temple is men and women of God. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> if I was God, I would have come up with a totally different plan. I would not have decided to make my dwelling in men and women. I would have come up with something else. But the Apostle Paul wants the, wants the church in Corinth to understand that collectively together, they embody the presence of God. And so what he is saying is this. The church, the capital C church, is the special locus of God's presence and God's power that is at work in the world. That's essentially what the Apostle Paul is saying. And he wants the Christians in Corinth to get a hold of it. Now, I want to be clear, though, that, that God's presence permeates all of creation, that you don't have to come to church in order to experience His presence. You don't have to come to church in order to pray or to worship. God's presence permeates all of creation. Uh, but one of the ways in which God makes His presence known in all of creation and all of the world is through His people who are the temple of God. And so it is, in fact, it is a wonder to realize that as we live out our role as the people of God, the presence of God is made manifest in the world. And I want us to just sit in that truth this morning. That's the, the, there isn't like, hey, here's three steps to go and do this. There isn't like, like five cute things that all start with the same letter. There's nothing like that. I just want us to sit in the reality and in the truth that as you and I live out our role as the people of God, the presence presence of God is made manifest in the world because we all together, y'all, you yourselves, are the temple of God. That by some mystery, God has chosen to dwell in us. And by some mystery, God is able to dwell in us and then to dwell through us, to dwell through us. A great picture or a great metaphor is a conduit. Over and over and over again, Scripture just points us to the fact that as the people of God, we are to be conduits of His love, of His grace, of his glory, of his presence, of his mercy, that we receive all of those things, they come into us. But man, how selfish would it be for us to just hold on to that, to just receive God's love, but then not pour it out, to receive God's grace, but then not be gracious, to receive God's mercy, but then not be merciful. Like over and over and over again, the picture that the scripture paints is that we are a conduit for all of these things. But I'm afraid that, that, we, that sometimes we just don't do a very good job, right? We, we take all of these things in and we just, we, we keep them for ourselves and then we read the scripture as though it's talking about just me. 
And in fact, one of the reasons that Paul is so big on the life of the community together is because he understands this point. In fact, that's part of the point that he's making in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Is he saying, oh, church, don't you realize that you all yourselves are the temple of God and that God's presence and God's spirit dwells in your midst. Therefore, you ought to treat one another with love. Therefore, you ought to offer forgiveness for one another when it's appropriate. Therefore, you ought to just, you ought to live out these things, first of all, among yourselves, and then second of all, into the world. But it's as though the Apostle Paul is saying, if you can never learn to live these things out amongst yourselves, you will never, ever do it in the world. And so it's, it's first of all, just a message, like, let's get a hold of this among our, our own people. And I think too often we, we, just, we just stop. We stop either with just receiving God's love, but then not be loving to people in the, in the, own, in the body of Christ or otherwise. Or sometimes we do a really good job of receiving God's love, being loving to those who are in our camp, and we draw cute little circles. We draw nice little lines around uh, who's in and who's out, and if, if you're in, then you are, are, are sort of worthy of receiving God's love and grace and mercy, as though God's love and grace and mercy uh, w w was something that is limited and scarce. So oftentimes we just go about our lives as though there is a scarcity of God's grace. And there's a scarcity of God's love, as though there weren't enough of God's love to go around. And so we need to draw cute little lines around who's in and who's out and who's worthy to receive that and who isn't. Listen, church, if we understand who God is and we understand ourselves to be conduits for God, then we will understand that all of these things that come to us are meant to be poured out for the good of the world and for people. And so I just, I, I first of all just want to encourage you with the fact today that we together, the church, the capital C church, are the very presence of God in the world. Now, of course, there are other evidences of the presence of God. Creation is one of them. We are very, very fortunate to live in such a beautiful place. And we can look at the majesty of mountains and be being drawn into the majesty of God. So, of course, there are other ways in which God uh, pours out and makes his presence known. But man, we cannot lose the fact that we are also a temple of God with the, with the privilege, the role, the responsibility of making the presence of God made known in the world, made manifest in the world. And you can tell that from Paul's rhetorical uh, structure of the question that he is trying to emphasize the importance to the church in Corinth uh, the rhetorical, don't you know, <laughs> implies that the church in Corinth didn't understand just how important this was. And so my prayer is that together we would embrace our calling as the people of God and embrace the reality that God lives in and through us. And so may we together display his glory to the world but may we display his glory in a way that is in line and congruent with the life and message of Jesus. Too often we try to display God's glory, but all we're doing is clanging a really loud cymbal. We're just making a lot of noise because we're doing it without love. And so, man, I just, I pray that 
each one of us, and that all of us collectively, and that the church, the capital C Church, would experience such a move of the Spirit that we would grab a hold of the fact that we are the temple of God with the responsibility and privilege of helping to make the presence of God and the glory of God made manifest in the world.